All right, if you have a Bible with you, please open to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, or you can follow along the same text as printed there in your bulletins. Um, we have the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or if you're as old as I am, it's the wheat and the tares that I grew up uh, hearing and thinking about. It's uh, provoked new thoughts for me and new questions uh, studying it and thinking about it this week, though, uh, partly because of my children and a lot of their friends who are Christians who bring new considerations or concerns to their thinking about their faith than the ones that I was used to thinking about when I grew up. We were uh, the people of the Billy Graham uh, generation who uh, were focused on the message of personal salvation, the way people are rightly related to God, uh, restored to relationship with Him, as the almost the sum total of the Christian faith. But... I noticed with my kids and a lot of people their age that they wanted to have the sort of the Billy Graham approach with all of the uh, message of uh, God's work through Jesus Christ to reconcile us to God. But they also uh, were inspired by Martin Luther King's dream of justice and his uh, application of the Christian faith to uh, situations in the world that aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And feeling drawn to both parts of this uh, emphasis in the Scripture about what it means to be a Christian. And so when I look at the parable of the wheat and the weeds, which talks about uh, how little is really going to change, probably, uh, at least in our lifetimes, in the places that we care so much about, uh, I was drawn in both directions. And both are kind of disillusioning because... uh, the church itself is pretty disillusioning for people. Uh, the words institutional religion are almost universally taken as a pejorative. All right? Nobody says institutional religion when they're about to say something nice about Jesus. All right? um, you just can assume that. And advocacy, in as much as you've dipped your toe into those waters, is very frustrating because there isn't that much we can do in this super broken world that makes a very big difference at all. And that becomes disillusioning pretty quickly. So this parable, we have Jesus talking, and it seems basically he's calling us uh, as people who are going to live in a dysfunctional family, the church, in the midst of a very broken world. So cheer up, right? This is great. This is why you come to church on Sunday afternoon. uh, To think about living in a dysfunctional family in a very broken world. Uh, But that's what we're called to. And if we ignore what he says here, Uh, we're going to live our lives uh, way more disillusioned, frustrated, and um, dismissively of the Christian faith than if we take seriously what he says here. And so for any of us trying to live in the church or trying to make a difference in the world, this is a very important parable. That's what we're going to talk about today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we ask that you would help us as we're here. We... uh, we want to hear from you. We want to know you. Uh, we want our lives to be shaped by your son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us and taught us. So please come speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So read with me, beginning at verse 24 in Matthew 13, and then we'll skip over. There's an explanation that starts in verse 36. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. 
And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then down at verse 36, it says, He left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, Well, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, I think at my son's instigation, for some reason I was reading the letter from the Birmingham jail this week, uh, Martin Luther King's letter to the uh, church leaders in Birmingham when he was uh, there imprisoned. It's one of his most famous writings. And uh, he was in prison because he was trying to push back against racial injustice in the South in the early days of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, But he was trying to do it really specifically as a Christian. Uh, trying to be shaped by Jesus' teaching and Jesus' constraints and the hope that Jesus gives as he did this. So he was working very hard uh, to try to do this in Jesus' way and was very vexed by either the apathy or the open opposition of most of the churches there in Birmingham and the surrounding areas. Um, He's trying as hard as he can to pursue this just cause as a Christian in a Christ-like way, and the church leaders are opposing him or apathetic to him or just saying, you know, let's, let's go way, 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 way slower than we are. And so he's trying to sort that out, and he writes this letter to the religious leaders, uh, scolding, questioning, and persuading them uh, to try to think differently about what they're doing and how they're thinking about his cause. So I was reading that, and then in contrast, went to see with a large group of you, David, um, the uh, first Reformed movie, last Wednesday night, down at the loft. Um, this is Paul Schrader, who's a Covenant College, I mean a Calvin College graduate who's written a lot of pretty famous screenplays. He wrote and directed this uh, movie about uh, a minister who has lost his faith, basically. He's definitely become disillusioned about the church and what the church can be. Um, but also has lost his own ability even to pray. Uh, So he's in this awkward situation as a minister who really has nothing left of his faith. Uh, But his zeal turns, instead of back to God in any kind of robust believing way, his zeal turns towards social activism. But he approaches it without any of the 
constraints of Jesus' life and teaching ringing in his ears and is uh, co-opted into kind of a vigilante violence. So you have a contrast of two different religious people with Martin Luther King Jr. in the Birmingham jail and Ethan Hawke's character in First Reformed um, trying to approach perplexing issues in the world with and without a robust faith in Jesus Christ. And so I want us to think about the tensions that they felt, especially King and what he said in his letter, as we try to understand this parable and kind of talk about it on the two heads. One, what does it look like to live in a dysfunctional church and somehow make it? Uh, And then also, what does it mean to try to engage ourselves in God's world in a fruitful way without becoming totally disillusioned? So kind of first in-house and second outside of our house. So first, the uh, dysfunctional family of the church. Um, I don't need to spend any time, I don't think, trying to persuade you that uh, churches are a mess. If you've been around them especially, you know this. There's a lot to put up with. There are a lot of people that are difficult to put up with. What church leaders do, what church denominations do is frustrating, vexing. It feels like at cross purposes to what you want to say to your friends who aren't Christians. In some ways, the church is the best and worst advertisement for the Christian faith. Right? I mean, if you've been around, you know this. Um, so what does the parable of the wheat and weeds tell us about the church? Do nothing? Yeah, that's the way it is. You know, there's, you got your wheat, you got your weeds. Uh, you're not going to be able to tell the difference between them too well. Uh, that's how it's going to go. That's basically what it says, right? It just, you know, almost if you had only this to go by, you'd say, well, if you look at the brokenness of the church, you would just shrug. Eh, what are you going to do, right? Uh, that's the way things are. I don't think that's what he's pointing us to. I mean, are we supposed to shrug our shoulders at uh, the pedophile priest scandals that have rocked the church? Are we supposed to say, eh, wheat and tares, you know what I'm saying? You know, that doesn't seem like quite the right Christ-like response. What about the financial scandals of the televangelists? Eh, what are you going to do? Uh, that's not what we're called to. Uh, if you have ministers who deny even the very basic content of the faith, is that supposed to be a matter of indifference to us? Um, are we supposed to do something? It's vexing. King wrestled with this as he watched the church during the civil rights movement basically work at cross purposes with what he thought was biblical justice. You know, he'd hoped the religious leaders would rally to the cause, that they would be kind of the conduits to the people in power, that if the white church ministers would speak on behalf of the civil rights movement, that it would be the conduit for real change. And he was very disappointed and disillusioned that that was not their approach in almost every case. He hoped that the church would be a countercultural community that said basically things are different here, our values are different, the way we treat each other is different, Uh, the way race works here is different, and uh, it's what we think is beautiful and just. We are a an alternative culture to what you see around you. And it said instead, the church was just the uh, ensconcer of the status quo. He said, instead of being a challenge to the power structures that are around you, sanction and console the power structures that are around you. Uh, You're not helping really at all. He'd gotten a letter that he references in his letter from a Christian in Texas who said, hey, you know, we know that colored people will receive equal rights eventually. But, you know, what's the big hurry? You know, the, the Christian church has only had the influence it's had after 2,000 years so far, so why? Uh, don't be in such a big hurry to see this change now. 
uh, a tremendous contentment with injustice uh, perpetrated by the church as well as supported by the church. And King was pointing this out, saying it shouldn't be this way. He's very vexed with the church. I, I want the church to be uh, the vanguard of what's true and beautiful and good in the world, and instead, uh, you're just an obstacle to that. So, if he reads the parable of the wheat and the weeds, what does he say? Shrug the shoulders? Oh well. This is just the way the church is? Well, that's not what we're being told. I mean, Jesus is the one telling us this, and he's spent most of his public ministry excoriating the church, right? Calling out injustice in the church, correcting the church, uh, pointing out hypocrisy in the church with language that none of us can really even use. It's so harsh. Uh, he was definitely activist in trying to promote the purity of the church. Religious believers uh, felt the pointy end of his stick a lot. Uh, he's the one who told us about in the church how you deal with someone who is openly breaking God's law and is unrepentant and bowed up against God. Uh, he said you know, in Matthew 18, just a few chapters after this, uh, here's what you do in dealing with someone like that to try to appeal to them to come back into the church, uh, to come back to repentance and a right relationship with God. He says if people are recalcitrant about that uh, in an ongoing way, in big public ways, that eventually they have to even be put out of the church. It's way more than a shoulder shrug right, about problems in the church he gave us. So what's he warning about And the wheat and the weeds? The disciples say, should we... Basically the question, should we dig up the weeds? And his answer is no. Don't. There's a lot that you're just going to have to wait on. It's a warning against rigorism. Is that a word? Rigorism? It's a word now. It sounds pretty good. right? Overly rigorous uh, church people. People who think that they're going to get a perfect, clean, pure, uh, pristine church here and now. Uh, overly pure. I think probably most of the denominations that we have in our country, and boy are there a bunch of them, uh, started with some of this attitude of we need to finally come out from those people who are uh, lesser Christians, who are fake Christians in many instances, and come be a pure church, a true representation of what Jesus is about, His message and His community on earth. We need to finally be the ones who uh, stand up and do this right. And have the kind of church we've always dreamed about and thought we should have. It's an old problem for Christians. Uh, The Donatist heresy, uh, which no one knew was a heresy for a while, back in the three or four hundreds in the church in Rome, I mean in the Roman Empire. It came about because people under the Diocletian uh, persecutions, some had uh, failed under the pressure. They had given copies of the scripture over to the magistrates to be destroyed uh, under pressure of persecution. They had failed. They were called the traditores, right? those who had uh, been traitors to the cause by giving over copies of the scripture. And after the Diocletian heresies ended, after Constantine uh, came in and uh, created freedom for Christians, the church had to then deal with what do we do with these traditores now? Can they come back in to the church? They failed at a moment of weakness. Can they come back in or not? And a lot of people said, no. Are you kidding? I mean, these people betrayed us. We were losing not just money, but our families. 
Uh, We suffered immensely under these persecutions and they bailed. They abandoned Jesus in his hour of need and the crisis. They weren't there and now they're just going to stroll back in. And they said, no, we're not going to receive communion from any of the priests who were traditores um, because that's just not okay. But eventually the church said that the Donatists, the pure ones, were heretical. Because they said uh, Jesus' church is a church of grace. And all of us are desperately in need of that grace. And the idea that the church is going to be that pure here and now is a false notion of the kingdom. The kingdom isn't fully here yet. Jesus' work isn't fully complete yet. And so you're going to have to live in the dysfunctional church with people that are deeply deeply troubling to you. Uh, You have to live in that church. And you may desire great purity in the church, and I hope you do. But the way you pursue that and exercise it has to be done pretty gently. Uh, Not over-rigorously. Because over-rigor draws us into a lot of mistakes. One is that we forget that we too are people who need God's grace all the time. And if there was a really pure church, you couldn't join it uh, because it would break the game. And remembering that, it's easy to say, but it's hard to believe when you're marching off to start your new denomination saying, we're with you, Lord. Sorry about all the other people. You know. So um, it's always going to be a mixture of true and false in the church. Not just like good and bad Christians. He said it's really going to be a mixture of Christians and non-Christians in the church even. And that you're not going to fix that. You're not going to root that out in this life. Which is uh, not the best news to me. Um, that's, that's frustrating news to me. Right? Life in the church is always going to be shot through with pain and troubles because of this. Um, it would be nice uh, if we could all be pure in the church, but we're not. And when it does come time for us to do discipline, to do what Jesus said in Matthew 18, eventually even if we have to put people outside the church, uh, it's never punitive. We don't have any kind of corrective power that way as the church. We just have the power of appeal to people to repent. And as soon as anyone ever turns away from rebelling against God, they're welcomed right back into the church. We can't punish anyone. So the idea that we're going to have purity on the level that a lot of us desire is a false desire. It's a false expectation. And if you latch on to that hope, think I'm going to go to the one pure church, I'm going to find the pure church, and I'm going to live in it, and we're going to show everybody... Um, you're going to wind up in a church that bites and devours each other, that's over-rigorous, where you can't live together. Uh, there are lots and lots of stories like that. You've got to get used to the idea you're going to live in a dysfunctional family. I'm used to it. Um, <laughs> I was trained well living in a dysfunctional family. My wife wasn't. She grew up in a family that was uh, uh, remarkably functional. I don't know what the definitions are. We were sitting around at uh, Christmas Eve one night. My sister was with us at some friend's house at a party and and I mentioned, I said, I think Julie's family's the most functional family I've ever observed up close and in person. And my sister, feeling like that Julie needed to be defended, <laughs> said, yeah, but they're fun. <laughs> so, uh, so my sister maybe has the right take on the parable of the wheat and the weeds, right? Um, living with a dysfunctional family at least gives you good stories to tell. And, uh, but that's what we're in for in the church. 
Uh, even in a church plant where you have the most uh, optimism about everything being right, you know, um, I haven't smelled that on you guys very much, and I think I'm too old to have it anymore, but usually a church plant is, we're going to finally do it right, we're going to get it right, do it the way it's supposed to be done, and that's not happening here. It's not going to happen here. This is going to be an okay church if God answers our prayers in dramatic ways, right? It's just going to be okay. I hope it is. Not just in-house, though. Uh, When you start thinking about having an influence for Jesus in the world, uh, which is a part of what we're called to as Christians, right? To push back in the world against what's broken and dark, uh, to seek peace where there's uh, disorder, to uh, uh, to push back against chaos and brokenness and oppression, to loosen the bonds of injustice. These are things that we're called to do as believers. But it's going to be in a world that is deeply broken that is going to pretty much stay deeply broken until Jesus comes back. I don't know how much traction you're ever going to be able to get as an advocate in this world. Um, It doesn't sound like from his parable that you're going to get all that much traction. Uh, That doesn't mean we don't push back. It doesn't mean that God might do some surprising things. We've had some examples through the ages. I I imagine William Wilberforce and his friends uh, were pretty surprised when they saw the slave trade end as a result of them pushing back against the darkness. But that's a rarer story, you know. That's not the normal story of God's people in the world. Now, the parable is mostly about the church, but it does affect us when we try to be advocates, activists in the world, uh, where we want to stand up for Jesus' truth for what's beautiful and just and good in the world. Um, it's Jesus' point, well, knock yourself out, but it's not going to do any good. You know, the weeds are still going to be there. Wheat and the weeds till the harvest. So, you know, you can try, but it's pointless. You're tilting at windmills if you try to make a difference in the world. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, don't bother with anything outside the church. The world's going to hell. That's just the way it is. Just hole up, take care of each other, and be okay with that. He doesn't say that. My tradition, Southern Presbyterians, uh, created a doctrine called the spirituality of the church uh, back during the days of chattel slavery in the U.S. and the South. And the idea basically what the minister said is, well, the church's business is spiritual. has to do with people's souls. And issues like slavery uh, and justice in the political sphere are not our business. The church is about spirituality, not about justice in the world. So I don't know, you know, whether slavery and kidnapping people and selling them as property and dividing up families is right or wrong. But, uh, you know, we're just all about souls. We're spiritual. And it was a dodge, right? We don't want to face what Jesus says and what the whole scripture says about what it means to be a human being and what's right and true. So we're, we're just staying in our little spiritual realm. That's not the case. Uh, Martin Luther King challenged the church that way because that was of doctrine revisited in the civil rights movement. Well, we don't meddle with political things. You know, that clearly is not a deeply held sentiment amongst the evangelical church. Um, But then it was convenient to say it, right? We don't meddle in the political things. But he called them dualists in his letter. He said, what are you, like like the the, uh, Platonists who uh, only believe that souls matter and not bodies? What kind of religion is that? Which was an excellent counter-argument to the spirituality of the church idea. Um, but here's what King saw uh, pretty insightfully, which is when you go to be an advocate or an activist, 
uh, you go shaped by and conditioned by Jesus' life and teaching, what He did for us and what He's doing in the world. And it really changes the way you approach activism in the world. It's very different. A couple of things that you see in the letter that he wrote. One is he had this tension that he was trying to live in between people who were what he called do-nothings, who were in despair because they'd lived so long in an oppressive system and were just uh, didn't have the energy to fight it anymore, and Elijah Muhammad and the, uh, the violent revolutionaries in the civil rights movement. And King was saying, as a Christian, I can't, I can't live over here in the do-nothing side. I can't say nothing. But I also can't go over here into the arena of violent revolution because I'm a Christian. Right? I have to do this within the confines of what Jesus said. So he talked about the more excellent way, using Paul's term, uh, where your activism is driven by love and nonviolence. Love and nonviolence. This is uh, Ethan Hawke lacked this in the movie. He was not, once he saw injustice in the world, he was not conditioned by Jesus' teaching about love and nonviolence. King Watts. He used the example of the early church and how they used a nonviolent uh, influence, which was mostly the influence of being persecuted, uh, that actually stopped the practices of infanticide and the gladiatorial games uh, in uh, the Roman Empire. That Christians had this influence, but they had it in a Christ-like way, not through violent... Uh, Revolt and also not through passivity. But they had this influence, and he was following their example. And he was insistent on, as he said, uh, the means and the ends matching up. He says you can't uh, take a just goal and use immoral means to achieve it. So as a Christian, you can't say, this is so important, I can behave terribly towards other people. I can't take cheap shots at people. I can't be a vigilante towards those people. I can't lie and distort the truth towards those people. My means have to be as moral as my ends, uh, which is a huge thing uh, to constrain you when you feel the self-righteous indignation of the activist. Right? It's a big deal for him. So I think you saw an example of this recently when the evangelical church, which has been pretty strong supporters of the current administration, uh, standing up against the administration's policy on child separation, uh, where a real difference was made by Christians because um, they said, no, this isn't okay. Right? And so that was uh, a quick example that we saw of Christians having an influence that way for justice. So implications for advocacy. Um, if you're going to be an advocate as a Christian, you can't be self-righteous. And that, that takes a lot of the fun out of advocacy, right? But, you know, this, the modesty of the parable, the wheat and the weeds grow together. When I hear about lawbreakers being taken out at the end of the age, I think, have mercy on me, Jesus, because um, there's a fantastic case to be made against me as the lawbreaker who needs to be taken out of the field. All right, so you don't go with self-righteousness. Just like with church discipline, in Galatians 6, Paul said, before you go correct somebody, First, examine yourself that you won't fall into sin. Because the people that you oppose when you're an advocate are people like you. They are not demons. They're people like you. And so that's a Christian perspective that's usually lost because advocacy is the uh, stirring up of the, of the righteous against the unrighteous. And there's not much room for humility and modesty in that kind of environment. 
Uh, second thing as a Christian, when you look at evil in the world and injustice, you see it as a very complex problem that is supernatural as well as natural. And this is different from how the world sees issues as well. The devil, Jesus says, sows the bad seed. Jesus believes that evil is not only human beings making evil choices and human beings creating unjust social structures. He thinks evil is also the result of personal evil in the world that is supernatural. Which is a far more complicated view of evil than most activists have. Most activists believe the problem in the world is there are baddies out there. And if us goodies can suppress the baddies, then the world will be good. Right? If our team can win and stop their team from being so evil, everything will be okay. And Christians can't approach evil in such simplistic terms. Right? We believe there is supernatural and tractable evil uh, that is a part of why things are the way they are. And that means that um, only Jesus can change a lot of the things that we want to see changed, including the evil in our own hearts. So as activists, we don't say, uh, if we bind together and exert political power, we can make things happen. We say that might be the right thing to do. It will have a limited effect. Uh, but we believe evil goes a lot deeper than what you can change with a law or what you can change with a scold uh, because the devil's behind it. That means that a Christian activist is someone who prays as much as they yell. Right? Because we think what needs to change goes beyond what we can yell into creation. And we resist the reductionism and self-righteousness of those who see evil as just the baddies out there. Third thing, implication for activism is uh, we're not the hero in this world. We serve the hero. Jesus is the hero. He's the one bringing His kingdom. Uh, we don't build or bring His kingdom. We don't make it happen. We serve the King and uh, look to Him to bring His kingdom. We pray for the kingdom to come and we serve the King. So we don't go out with heroic sense of self to say, I'm the one who's going to do something marvelous for Jesus. We go out and say, the king has called me to this specific place, and I'm going to serve him here. And if the results are dramatic or undramatic, that's okay because he's the king and he's put me here. Right? It's a modesty that comes from knowing that you live in a field where the wheat and the weeds are both going to grow together. And then lastly, a Christian activist eschews violence. Violence is not open to us um, as Christian activists. Martin Luther King got this. He understood it very well that he wasn't nonviolent just as a strategy because he thought it would work. He was nonviolent because he believes that God has reserved vengeance to himself. God reserves vengeance to himself. He does not give us the power to execute vengeance on other people. Uh, never to be the vigilante. At the end of the age, Jesus will return, the king. He will judge the quick and the dead. He will bring his kingdom. Things will be right then. Injustices will be wronged. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. But God reserves vengeance for himself. And so he doesn't leave it open to us. And this is important for a Christian activist too because uh, King said, and Martin uh, Miroslav Volz said uh, very persuasively recently in his book, uh, that believing that God is a God of vengeance is essential for us if we're going to be nonviolent. Because we'll get so disillusioned that we'll, result to, we'll resort to violence 
If we don't have firm confidence that Jesus will come as the judge, the rider on the white horse, and set things right, that God does hear the cry of the oppressed, as our call to worship said, right? that He will judge. It's belief that God will exercise vengeance that enables us to withhold vengeance, even when we think it's necessary. Right? And so we live uh, in a broken world, seeking justice and loving mercy for Jesus' sake in that world, and knowing that even though we don't expect a tremendous amount of world-changing fruit to come from us, we can persevere. Because we're serving a king who's bringing his kingdom, and eventually he will set things right. And what we're doing in the meantime matters. And in the midst of that, when it's not very encouraging, when church isn't beautiful and when the world isn't changing like we want it to, we come together and we sing because of his great love, we are not overcome. Like we gathered to sing today. Because of his great love, we're not overcome. We still have hope. So you're called to this. A field with weed and weeds in it. You're called to a church that's dysfunctional. You're called to love it. And you're called to give your life and share your life with people who are not all that pleasant to share your life with. And you're called to endure with your church even when uh, she's not very pretty and not very effective. And you're called in the world to push back against the curse. uh, To push back against what's broken and chaotic in the world for Jesus' sake. And to keep the dream of the kingdom alive. And you're meant to be animated as you do that with the hope that one day, really, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Now let's pray.